Welcome to a homegrown family podcast where we grow the produce and the kids. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a homegrown family podcast. I'm your podcast host, Joe Mettler. And boy, are we having some great fall weather up here in the upper Midwest. Mid-80s and the wheat's getting harvested and the soybeans are browning up and well on their way. So it's a great fall, although it is pretty dry out there. So looking forward to some moisture as well. Today we have a topic where we're going to be talking about the harvest and juice extraction of our apples and grapes that we've been talking about. In the previous episode, we had talked a little bit about our apples, you know, and our apple orchard and the origin of the orchard and everything. And um, our primary fruits are grapes and apples. So I'm going to kind of start with apples here first. We've had a pasture apples, we call it. And my dad's pasture has a variety of different, like, Johnny Appleseed style apples. Anything from red crab apples to, you know, green crab apples to larger tennis ball style yellow apples and things like that. And that's where we get a lot of our apples from. We also get apple trees from the yard and from relatives and... Occasionally, my dad will pick some up on his mail route, you know, and uh, my brother David will also pick some from neighbors that typically don't eat all their apples. So, we got our apples from a variety of different sources. Let's talk about the harvest a little bit. So, we have uh, a couple of different methods we use. Obviously, anything that you can reach from your hands while standing on the ground. We utilize dad's tractor. We utilize the truck, you know, a stepladder. And we also sometimes put the ladder in the bed of the truck <laughs> to reach all the high places. Or we use a tractor that has a loader on it in a bucket and we can lift it up and get to higher spots in the, in the trees. And uh, we've also used an apple picker, which is kind of a tool that's like a on a mop handle, I guess you could say, or a broom handle. Um, about six foot long and it has like a little cup in there. And then you kind of hand some wires that come up and you can kind of get up in there and put the wires behind the apple stem. And then just pull on it and it'll land into your little bucket. This crate there that's in the top of your your stick, and then you can pull it down, come bring it to you, grab the, the apple out, and put it in your in your container. We have a couple of those that we're able to utilize to get those higher places. Also, um, there's definitely some advantages and disadvantages to those, and I'll kind of talk about that here in a little bit. Harvest containers. Traditionally, we started out with like cardboard boxes, you know, putting apples in boxes and whatever kind of containers we could find. Until one day, my brother found an auction, David. He found an auction that was selling these harvest lugs. And maybe I'll throw a little link in the show notes here showing you what a harvest lug is. But it's basically it's a plastic container. sits like six eight inches tall. And this is like a foot wide by three foot long. Something like that. And they have a bunch of holes in them. So they're plastic, hard plastic. They don't really, they're not really flexible at all. And they have these holes in them to allow airflow so... Fruit and things don't get moldy inside if it sits too long or if there's juices that are flowing because the grapes are really fresh or whatever or something like that. Or you have a rotten apple in there. It's just not going to sit there and soak in on the rest of the apples. And the harvest lugs, as they call them, are also stackable, which is really nice. And so a lot of the, the more commercial orchards and wineries and things have these lugs and they're definitely very convenient to use. When we harvest, we start using these lugs and usually start with clean lugs. You know, we wash them with some soap and water or sanitize them. But um, make sure you have a clean container to start with. You don't want to start with something dirty that's going to be contaminating your apple from the start. When you're picking your apples, you know, you want to avoid bruising the apples, right? Because bruising could result in some off flavors or, or things like that. Or 
and it can be an entry point for diseases to occur and molding to happen. And so you want to avoid bruising. You don't want to sit there and you don't want to toss them into your container, bouncing them around. That being said, sometimes you just can't, can't avoid the bruising and, and it doesn't always impede the flavor that much, in my opinion. And so you also want to try to avoid picking apples that are on the ground, um, especially out in the pasture that we have, because you have cows and animals and deer and things that like to come in and eat the apples if we don't get to them fast enough. It's kind of funny. Sometimes you'll just see about as far as the, the deer can reach, the apples will be gone <laughs> and the rest of the tree will have a bunch of apples. They obviously do their business underneath the tree and you might have manure that these apples hit on if they're landing on the ground, which could contaminate you know, your juice or your cider and things like that. So we try to avoid picking them off the ground or if we do pick them off the ground, you know, put them in a separate tote um, or a harvest lug, you know, wash them up before you press them or juice them or whatever you do with your apples. And so, yeah, we just want to make sure that we harvest in a separate container if you're harvesting off the ground because typically the fruit that lands on the ground is to the point where it's probably going to get overripe and that's resulting in it, in it falling off. And so you introduce overripe fruit and potential pathogens into the rest of your apples. And so it also reduces the storability of the rest of your apples that you have been picking off the tree if you add some bruised ones or ones that have been picked up off the ground, which are obviously going to be bruised. And then in terms of actual picking the apple, if you read up on a little bit, the people will talk about a roll picking method, basically a way that you can pick the apple to not result in any damage or loss of fruiting clusters or spurs for next year's fruit. So when you pick an apple, you kind of want to, as I describe it, go up to the apple, put the apple in your palm, and then kind of wrap your fingers around and then lift up and twist on the apple. So that way the stem kind of just snaps off from the rest of the tree and all you have left is the stem and the apple. You're not bringing any extra leaves or part of that cluster or fruiting spur with you. If you just grab the apple and pull, you could end up taking that fruiting spur with you and then reducing next year's fruit or the amount of next year's fruit or buds at least. So um, you kind of want to avoid that. So that's called the roll picking method. I may post something on the show notes about that, but it's pretty simply put. You just want to avoid just pulling the apples off and pulling leaves and any extra things apart from the stem. And this method, I guess, you know, also helps keep the stem attached if you're twisting and pulling up on it because apples without stems, you know, and I just learned this recently, actually, that apples without stems do not store as well as apples with stems. So that I thought was pretty interesting, actually. And then once we harvest all the apples, we'll keep them in these lugs until we decide to press them for juice. My mom and dad have like a little commercial refrigerator that we can put in like, I don't know, 15 of these lugs into. Uh, maybe that's too many. Maybe 10. Um, anyways, that we can keep some of these pasture apples in because they don't keep very long. And so it's nice to be able to get them on cooler temperatures. But otherwise, we'll do a lot of picking just a couple of days prior to pressing. And we'll take care of them as fast as we can. Shifting gears a little bit in the harvest component, then we have grapes. And our grapes aren't much different. They are on a trellis system. Um, and so they have a couple, they have one wire on top that we kind of train a vine up. And then once it, hit, once it hits the wire, about five feet tall, they go in both directions. And so to prepare for harvest, we like to go through the vines and kind of trim back some of the vines and the grapes, kind of exposing the actual grapes and reducing the amount of vines in the way when it comes to harvest just to make it easier. 
So right off the bat, you know, we used to use Felco pruners for basically everything when it comes to trimming down the grapes or doing grafts or cuttings or things like that. We always used to use these Felco pruners and why not use them to harvest the grapes with and just snip a little stem above the cluster and you're good to go. I think about after one or two of us got nipped our fingers a little bit, we decided just to find a different method. And we ended up using what we call, or what is called, a grape fork. And so a grape fork is more of a safe method for harvesting your clusters of grapes. This uh, grape fork has, well, it's kind of like, you know, a utensil of some sort. We have a nice little grippy handle, and then it comes up, and it's going to be basically a little a little V that has blades on both sides, kind of like a razor blade. And so this V comes up, but then there's no blades on the outside, so it's kind of guarded. As you're collecting this grape, you hold onto the cluster with one hand, and then you take this other hand that has the, the grape fork in it, and you're able to push it on the stem, and then it basically cuts the stem, right? And then you grab a cluster and you lay it down into your lug. Because if you throw your grapes down into the lug, then you start squishing things and you lose juice and you lose yield. Um, that's kind of how we harvest grapes. It's not much different than the apples, other than the methodology of actually picking the grapes is a little different. It does take a lot of time. We have a lot more cultivars of grapes, I think, as far as sorting out if we're selling to any wineries. Um, we also want to keep each lug labeled um, with specific apples or grapes, um, just so that way if we do do a batch of certain juice, we kind of know what, hey, this, this apple or this grape does produce a lot of nice flavors. And so we'll keep our Savoir separate from our, um, our Frontenac Blanc, you know, separate from our Valiant. Um, I think this year we had, uh, it was like 20-something lugs of Valiant, so that was kind of cool. And uh, we did sell some uh, some grapes to a uh, place here in Fargo, so we ended up pressing, I think it was like 65 gallons of juice for them, so that was kind of nice um, to get a little bit of return on our investment, not just for hobby brewing or, or juice for our, for our family, so it's nice to be able to help support some of our hobbies, <laughs> as David and I would call it. Yeah, so we have all these grapes and all these apples that are now in our cider room, as we call it. And our cider room, it's kind of a cool story, actually. So our, our cider room kind of originated from a milk house parlor. So if you go back and listen to the episode, The Man, the Beast, the Legend, my dad will talk about how we, um, how he was milking cows back in the day when he first started farming. And so we have this milk room parlor that we no longer use because dad got out of the dairy and moved into beef. And so it's kind of this empty room. Um, this bulk tank was taking up a lot of space and we didn't really utilize it a whole lot that I remember. It's also the, the room in which the water moves into the barn. And so we always have to keep it heated and everything and things like that. So eventually dad took the bulk tank, um, made it into a water trough for the cows and then kind of gutted the room out of all the, the piping and things that were used for transporting milk within the barn and there's also another room that we call called it more like the office i think it's where dad did a lot of his bookkeeping and things like that but it also had like the water pressure tank in there and some other things dad kept the refrigerator in there it had all the medicines and things like that for the animals and so we took that room and the milk house room milk parlor room and took out the wall in between and then uh, made a what like large room that was basically twice the size Maybe, maybe even three times the size of the milk room. And the one half started slanting down into the lean where the lambs and the mothers of the lambs had their 
early days of living in the barn, he kind of kept them in individual stalls in the lean. To keep uh, any manure or anything like that out of that area, it was slanted towards that area to keep it out of the milk room. And so we put some cement back on the floor on that side and kind of level it out. And we re-insulated the walls a little bit better because the barn was pretty old, <laughs> needed some new insulation. Anyways, we ended up redoing this whole space in the barn to be able to utilize as our grape processing area to help press and juice and uh, crush apples and crushed grapes and de-stem grapes and things like that. It's kind of a multi- multi-purpose room. And we also use another half, half of that room for meat processing, you know, when we do um, our venison and things like that. And we have stainless steel tables that we can use for that and a stainless steel sink that we installed, you know. Um, so it's kind of kind of a neat ordeal, kind of a neat endeavor. And it's kind of been growing and growing every year. It seems like we added something a little bit different or a little bit new. So, yeah, so that's kind of cool. And so we have this, kind of going back to, you know, we're done harvesting. And we have all these grapes and apples. And so the process to extract the juice is similar but yet different between the two. And so kind of going to start with the apples again. We basically had an apple crusher that we had to hand crank. It was a hand cranked apple crusher. And so we have one individual that would put the apples from the lugs into the hopper area of this hand crank. Another person would sit there and crank the apples out into a five-gallon pail that has been sanitized. You know, and so then we end up with this mash, as they kind of call it, um, or crushed apples that were in these pails. And so I'll back up a second there and talk quickly about the type of sanitizer I use. I use a sanitizer called Star San, and it's basically an acid sanitizer for surface sanitization. And you can read up on it, but it's Star San, S T A R space S A N. And it basically has a couple different types of acids in it, and so it gets the pH down below what you know, bacteria and some other things like that can can survive that. Um, that's worked really well for me. And you basically just soak it. Um, we have a tote set aside during this whole process. It has just this solution of star sand in it, one ounce per five gallons of water. But we have this tote that's pretty large that has the right ratio in it to get good sanitization in it. And we'll put our pails in there. We'll circulate them around so that the whole entire pail is covered in the solution. And we we'll let it sit for like five minutes. Um, so once it's diluted in water, um, you know, you should wear gloves and goggles and stuff to prevent, you know, eye contamination and things like that. But yeah, that works pretty well for me. You can get that in almost any of the brewing places um, or even online at Amazon. So star sand. There you go. So now we have all these apples that are in these in these pails getting ready to be put into a bladder press. Can you imagine a cylinder that has a bunch of, it's basically like a big screen, right? Like a cauldron that you use to rinse your, you know, your vegetables in the sink. You know, your noodles or mac and cheese or whatever. <laughs> but, um, so it's, it's a big cylinder and it has this strainer basically type of look to it. And you pour your apples in there, but in the center of the cylinder is this balloon or bladder. That's kind of a hard, like car tube tire type material, but it'll go under pressure and water will expand this bladder. And then in between the bladder and the screens, are all these apples that you put in there, these crushed apples. And so you put it on a lid on it. After that, it'll expand and it'll push the apples out into the screen, basically pushing out any type of moisture that it can. So it's kind of still, you know, mechanical, but it has a bladder. And then the gravity flows the juice down, goes into a, a funnel basically and gets collected into a different pail that's sanitized again. With the apples, I think we put in, oh... 
one and a half to two lugs in a press and end up getting mm, about two gallons of press, depending on the apple. You know, some apples are more juicy than others. Um, sometimes crab apples are not as juicy. Um, and so it kind of just depends on how much you're going to get per press. But boy, that juice that comes out of that press is like the best apple juice you've ever tasted. You know, it's coming fresh off off the apples like that. Oh, so good. And so then we have this fresh pail of a five-gallon pail of juice. At that point, I think I'm going to go back to the grapes here quick. So grapes are kind of a similar process. So we got we ended up, you know, we have juice set aside for the apples. And now the, the grapes, you know, we don't put them through a... Uh, a mechanical crusher per se, but what we do do is put them through a crusher destemmer. Problem is with the grapes when with the bladder press is that all the stems could poke holes into your bladder press, which is kind of an expensive thing to replace. So we want to remove all the stem material as much as possible. If you can imagine again another little hopper that you pour the lug of grapes into, it goes out into an auger that and some that has paddles on it that will basically tear or pull off the grapes from the stems and so it goes through this auger and then all the stem material gets caught and gets pushed down through the auger while all the grapes and juice flows through the auger because it has another uh, another screen there it catches and goes through the auger and then gets caught down into a pail and that's your mash you know your your stem your small particles of stems and all your juice and all your your grapes and skins. That's considered the mash um, prior to wine. You can ferment that straight if you wanted to and then re-rack it from there and all that type of stuff. But what we like to do is that after that, we'll put that into the bladder press and we'll press juice out in the same similar fashion. The only thing different with the grapes is, is that my dad had a stainless steel cylinder again that would sit on top of the bladder press to to like another layer on the outside, basically, that would help keep the juice from just squirting out along along the floor because if if you had if you didn't have this like basically this catch system here extra layer if the juice the grapes sometimes would press out so fast that it would shoot into like little you know squirt gun projectile of juice so we'd oftentimes put that that extra cylinder on there the juice would just basically just hit that and then drain down and go into the pail so helps us to collect as much juice as possible without making more mess than necessary. <laughs> so as you can imagine, it's kind of a sticky, sticky ordeal. Um, you know, we have that stainless steel sink there with some cleaning solution in it, some soapy water, or just a place to be able to rinse your hands and wash your hands between presses um, and things like that. Wear gloves, you know, when necessary. We are to the point now where then we have a pail of juice, whether it's apple or grape. Things that we'll do with that is, is we'll can it. You know, if you and if you can can it within a day or two, that's perfect for any of the wild yeast. You know, because we haven't done anything to kill off any yeast, the wild yeast could come in and start fermenting your juice. I brought some juice home straight from the press, and it lasted about two weeks still, and it still hasn't fermented in my fridge. So you can eat it and have it as fresh juice for probably about two weeks. Um, certain wild strains of yeast are more aggressive than others, so it kind of just probably depends on the strain that you have on that particular year. So we can some. And we freeze some, and we have some for fresh juice. Um, and if you, and if we can't get to canning it right away, so like for example, my brother David moves a couple hours away from the farm. Um, you know, we're we're getting pails full of stuff on Saturday, and he ain't gonna be able to can it till Tuesday, Wednesday. You know, 
um, rather than trying to let any of some of the bacteria and things like that in there that might be in there producing anything badly um, or to help keep any of the wild yeast from doing anything, we'll add camden tablets to those pails that he can't get to right away. And we'll also add camden tablets to the pails in which I'm using for cider and for wine, primarily as a way to kill off any wild yeast. Um, it's Canon tablets, you know, which is some people, there's probably, you can find all sorts of blogs on the use of Canon tablets and using too much Canon tablets or not enough Canon tablets and this and that. If you follow the directions on the, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty amateur brewer here, okay? I'm not a professional. I've taken a brewing course and I'm probably up to like 300 gallons of wine and cider or something, maybe, maybe 500 that I've done in the last six to seven years. But, um, if you look at the instructions, the cam tablets, bags that you can buy them off of, you know, Amazon or wherever, you can buy these cam tablets and it says to add one cam tablet per gallon of juice. Basically, the cam tablet is a potassium metabisulfate, okay? And so it creates an environment that's not good for wild yeasts and bacterias. And then part of the process of the interaction with the juices is that it'll exert um, or dissipate, you know, free sulfur dioxide. So, um, this ratio of one tablet to one gallon of juice will essentially be 30 parts per million of free sulfur dioxide or sulfates in your wine or your juice. There's, you know, people that will say that that's, you know, there's, you get to a point where you add too much sulfides into your wine. I mean, there is, but as a general rule of thumb, from what I hear, you can use a can of tablet, you know, one tablet per gallon of juice. You can use one tablet in the beginning to kill off any wild yeast. You can use another tablet to um, during rear rack in your wine making process, and you can use another tablet pre-bottling. And so you can use up to three tablets per gallon of juice, and you should be pretty clear of having too many sulfates. If you start adding more tablets on top of that, then you got to start measuring probably how much sulfates you have in your wine, okay? General rule of thumb, but definitely don't go in blindly adding Camden, to, adding Camden tablets. Camden tablets, I guess. It's C-A-M-P-D-E-N tablets. Um, add one, we add one per gallon of juice. It's a five per five gallon bucket. And I like to add the tablets into the bottom of the pail before the juice pours into the pail. So that way it helps stir that around for me. I don't have to worry about sticking a, a, you know, sanitizing a spoon and stirring in between each batch. Let the, let the gravity work in its favor and mix the juice for me. And then I just say that you shouldn't add any commercial yeast to this pail of yours till 24 hours after the can tablets have been added. I also wouldn't go back and can anything within 24 hours just to allow all the sulfur dioxide to dissipate and leave the juice. So that being said, having an open exit for air to escape your fermenter container or the container in which you added the tablet tablets to, to allow this, this sulfur dioxide to dissipate. I personally don't really worry about that a whole lot. You know, I'm, I'm putting it in a five-gallon pail, putting it on a sealed lid with five tablets in it, and I'm transporting it, you know, a couple hours. And I usually wait 24 hours, more like 48, before I do anything with my wine or cider-making process. And then once I'm adding yeast and adding things like that, you know, this this pail is open to the air, so it's, you know, slowly releasing the buildup of sulfur. And then as I ferment, it's, it's losing air. As I re-rack, it's getting exposed to air, and I'll re-rack multiple times, so... I'm, I'm not worried about any of that, but some people say you can put a newspaper over the top if you're afraid of 
debris landing in your pail or things like that. But um, the camp tablets do help kill off some some bacteria and things like that too. So you should be fine. But I would not recommend going straight from opening up the pail to putting it in the can or, you know, and closing up the jar. Definitely let it aerate for a little while before you do anything with it after 24 hours. So then we're to the point where we have five gallon pails of apple juice or grape juice. Like I said, some of it goes to canning, some of it goes to fresh juice, and some of it goes to freezing, which we don't add can to the tablets too because canning, you're cooking it, so you kill off anything. And then freezing it, you're freezing it, so you kill off most things. And then if you're doing your fresh juice, it takes a little while for these bacteria and things to multiply and create a problem. So you're good. So we have this juice, five gallon pails full of each, and they make their way to my basement where all the brewing begins. <laughs> you know, that's where I do most of my stuff is in the basement. You know, this time of year, it smells like a brew house, you know, it smells a little yeasty, but it's also kind of, I don't know, for me, it's kind of a pleasant smell, but um, it eventually turns into a sweeter smell as I get more refined in the process and, and then it turns into palatable flavor. We'll leave this episode at that because then we'll move into talking about brewing, wine making, and cider making coming up. So thank you all much for your attention. I appreciate all the listeners. If you're a cider maker or brewer yourself and, you know, if there's something that you noticed in my process that I didn't include that you include, you know, feel free to shoot me an email at homegrownfam at gmail.com or, or uh, add me on Instagram at homegrownfam and uh, make some comments. We can reach out to each other, come up with some different ideas. As far as brewing goes, uh, definitely it's interesting to see what different types of yeast people are using, or maybe you don't use a bladder press, you use this type of press, and it works really, really well. You know, you've seen people that will use balloons in a one-gallon pail and use that as their airlock, you know, while making cider. So, you know, all these different things. It's a good community to be part of, and um, if you have any types of things or different types of comments, feel free to reach out. I'm definitely looking for ways to develop my practice of this and, and everything else, so... Um, yeah, hope all my listeners are enjoying these episodes. Yeah, enjoy the fall weather. It's great out there. 